Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. This is Peter speaking. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, um, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, what we're going to talk about this morning, um, we're going to talk about leadership in the church. Um, I'll, I'll explain to you how that's going to relate to you. But um, I should give you a little bit of background here. We've got Peter. He's an apostle. He's speaking to these elders. I want to give you a little historical background of their relationship. And so Peter starts off here. He's exhorting the elders. And um, let me back up to when Jesus was ministering. So in the early 30s AD, Jesus started traveling around and teaching and doing miracles and preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel. And he brought to himself 12 disciples. Um, Peter was one of them, the author of this. And later they were called the 12 apostles. Now one of them betrayed Jesus, Judas, betrayed Jesus. Um, so after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension in 33 AD, um, Matthias was chosen as a replacement for Judas. Um, the requirements for an apostle were pretty clear. They're in Acts chapter 1, and it would be that an apostle had to witness the resurrection of Jesus, um, not witness his resurrection, but witness Jesus after he had been resurrected, and they had to be commissioned directly by Jesus. Now, Paul fits that requirement because in his conversion, he saw the resurrected Jesus and was commissioned directly by Jesus. But there's no apostles today, okay? No, none in the New Testament sense of the word, because no one can meet that standard. The apostles were a foundational uh, group of men in the church. They were spokesmen of Jesus. They spoke with his, his authority. So, for example, in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 14, he can say something like this. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. Okay, so Paul was able to write with God's authority, we looked at a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 2.42, and we looked at the early church in, um, in Jerusalem, and we saw that they devoted themselves to fellowship and to prayer and communion and the apostles' teaching. Okay? So the apostles' teaching, that authoritative teaching that they had was the foundation of the church. And um, what do we do now? I mean, the apostles are dead. You know, what do we do now? God preserved the apostles' teaching right here in the New Testament. So the New Testament writings are the preserved teaching of the apostles, and that is the authority we have in the church. Um, the, uh, the apostles also um, set up leaders in the church. They called them elders, and so they went through all the churches, and they set up elders or pastors of all the churches. And Paul and the other apostles charged them to lead the churches according to, to God's word. So here's how it worked. You had Peter and Paul and the other apostles and their, their band of uh, helpers and missionaries. And they went out and they preached the gospel all over the place. Some people believed the good news about Jesus. They became disciples. They were gathered into churches. They would meet locally in little bands, not in church buildings. They would have met in homes. And they began to disciple those people and train them and, um, and, and prepare them for ministry. And so Paul says to Timothy, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the interesting thing is the apostles did not appoint more apostles. They appointed elders. They appointed pastors in the church. 
And so in Acts 14, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. And then listen to this. And when they had appointed elders... From them, in every church, they prayed and fasted and committed them to the Lord. So the way it worked is the apostles in their band would go out. They would go out on circuits of evangelism. They would gather people together. They would disciple them. And then they would later come back, look amongst the church, and appoint elders. Now, you guys might not be as familiar with the term elder. Um, the, the New Testament also uses the term pastor or overseer for the same thing. How many of you guys have been in a church where, um, you know, it was led by elders? And so you're familiar with that term. How many of you guys pastor? Pastor is a really familiar one in our context. The word pastor is a Latin word for shepherd. Um, how many of you guys have been in a church where they are called overseers? Like we never use that one, okay? That one's pretty rare. Okay, but they all mean the same thing. They all re- the elder, pastor, overseer all refer to the same leader, just like um, a man might be uh, called a husband, a father, and a friend, right? They're different roles of the same person. And so what's really cool is we see all three of them here. Take a look again at our text in 1 Peter 5. He says, in verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So he called them elders, and then he says this, shepherd the flock of God, that's where we get the word pastor from, that is among you and exercise oversight. And that's where, where we get the word overseer. So you see all three roles of a pastor here, pastor, elder, overseer. And so the apostles found men in every church that were qualified to be elders, pastors, overseers. And what's really cool is because they sent some of their crew out, they sent out Timothy and they sent out Titus, we actually have a list of what they were looking for. So we don't have to wonder, because he gave Timothy a list. He says, when you find guys like this, this is what they look like. Or to Titus, he gave him a list. He told Titus, he said, that's why I left you in Crete, that you could put in order the thing that remains in the church, that you would appoint elders. And then he gave him a big list of what what to look for. The other interesting thing about this, guys, is they always appointed more than one pastor. Okay? In every case, when they went into the churches, they appointed more than one pastor, elder, overseer. It's always plural. In fact, in the New Testament, there's never a case where there's a New Testament church that's led by one pastor. Did you realize that? Always in the plural. It's always the elders of this church, um, the overseers of this church. And um, I know you guys have seen a lot of different church government structures because as Christians and as Americans, we've tried many things. You know, we have all these ideas, and we do all these different things. And I know that a lot of those have been greatly used by God. So I'm not going to, you know, spend a lot of time fighting against all that. I know God's really used those. But guys, the, the pattern in the New Testament is very clear, and it's simple. And it's this. A church would not be led by one pastor, but by a team of pastor, elder, overseers. It all means the same thing. Should I keep doing that? Pastor, elder, overseer? That's kind of weird, huh? Okay, well, I might keep doing that. Um, so a team of men like that, and then led, also assisted by a team of deacons. And deacons, I'll talk about next week, can be men and women, elders, pastors, or men. And so, for example, you see Paul writing to Philippi, and he says this, to, the, to all the saints, which is the believers, to the overseers and deacons. He's writing to all the church, and he singles out the, the pastors, elders, overseers, and the deacons. And so that's the design. And I love God's design here. And I love God's design is that the church would be led by a team of equals. And maybe you guys haven't encountered that, but that's really important. It's important that the church be led by a team of pastors that are equal. This protects the church. This protects the pastors. This protects the church in that it provides accountability. 
You know, there isn't one guy that has all the control, right? Even Peter had to be rebuked by Paul. You know, it's written in Galatians where Paul comes to town and he just, you know, tears into Peter publicly, right? He needed it. Um, so it provides accountability. It provides shared wisdom. You know, one person doesn't have all the wisdom. It provides shared wisdom. It provides a diversity of gifts. They'd all have the same qualifications, but they'd have difference in gifting. And it prevents things like kind of a, a cult following, you know, that you see in so many churches, especially really big ones, where you see that there's like weird stuff starting to happen, where there's this the pastor thing, where everybody's kind of got their eyes on him. It prevents, hopefully, power trips, where somebody doesn't have all the power. It protects the pastors from things like burnout and criticism. It's kind of cool to have multiple guys and put targets on all of them, right, instead of one guy. It's awesome. We love that. Um, it prevents anxiety. It prevents a burden on their families where these guys can share the work of ministry. And a, a particular elder or pastor could take a break for a time for his family. It prevents isolation. People talk about the pastor being a very lonely place. doesn't have to be. That's not God's design. God's design is that there would be um, a, a crew of guys that would do this together. Um, it prevents um, isolation that's dangerous. I mean, we all say to everyone that being isolated is a dangerous thing for a Christian, right? That's what Satan wants. It's divide and conquer, right? It's um, like you watch those nature shows and you see the caribou, and the caribou are running, and, and the wolves are behind them, and then you see that one caribou, right, that goes off on its own? What happens? Dead, okay, for sure. Same thing with pastors. They need to be in a band. They, don't, they shouldn't be isolated. And so the universal pattern in the New Testament, I'd be, love to you know, deal with this with you and talk with you on it if this is like tiny your thing, um, is that there wouldn't just be one pastor, but that there would be a team of equals pastoring the church. Um, and, and, and there's only one senior pastor. Okay, guys? And he's in verse 4. Take a look. In verse 4, it says... When the chief shepherd appears, okay? That actually means senior pastor, right? Because shepherd means the same thing as pastor. There is only one senior pastor in the church, and it's Jesus himself. And so God's got this beautiful, simple design, wise design. And I want to just talk about this morning, what do these pastor, elder, overseers, what do they do? You know, what do they do? And um, I think what's really cool about this is that those three names show what they do. So I'm going to go through the three names, elder, pastor, overseer, and show how each one of those names shows something that they do, Okay. Now, you might be asking yourself, why do I care? Okay, and I feel this strongly, okay? As I was prepping this week and stuff like that, I'm thinking, like, are they going to be interested in this? And um, you should, but you might not be, okay? So I want to help you a little bit with that. You might be saying this morning, you know, like, hey, I'm not really into organized religion, okay? Um, I'll tell you guys, trust me, disorganized religion is far worse, Okay? I don't know if you guys have experienced disorganized religion. Far worse than organized religion. It's important that we have a structure. And the cool thing is, guys, is that we want to invite you guys to be a part of us discovering who these pastors should be. So that's what I want you to put on this little blank spot here. That is, we're going through this, and I'm talking about this, I'm talking about qualifications and stuff. I'd like you to write a list, and it can be several, um, men in our church that you think should be pastor, elder, overseers, Right? So I'd like you to actually write it in there. I really want you to do this, okay? Like, this is really important to me, so if you do that. Because what it does is it helps us, because what we're trying to do is not um, appoint somebody. We want to discover who the body already sees as those who are pastoring and eldering among us. So please write those down. If you're a person, a man, that, that feels that you're called to this, I'd like you to write your own name down. Is that weird, voting for yourself? Okay, I'd like you to write your own name down. And the reason is in 1 Timothy, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. So desire is actually an important part of calling. 
And maybe this is helpful for you, for you guys to see. How do we know we're called to something? How do we know we're called to be a pastor or a deacon? How do we know that we're called to a particular, even profession? There's really three ingredients. It's desire plus qualification plus opportunity. Because I was talking to a guy this week, and we were talking about calling, and he was talking about, you know, that he needs to make sure that he knows that he's called. And sometimes this is made into a really mystical thing. And some people have very mystical stories that I'm not going to argue with. I think that probably really happened where, you know, God told me I need to do this or that. Um, I don't think you need to wait for that. I believe that you are called by God to a particular ministry or to a particular uh, vocation if you have a desire for it, if you're qualified for it, and you have an opportunity for it. Then it's a calling. And so we want you to fill your own self out in there because it shows us you have a desire. And so if you're new, and there's some of you are new, and you got, I don't know anybody here, I'd still like you to fill this out, and I'd like you to just write some of your impressions about what I talked about this morning. So you can just write whatever your impressions are. Feel free. Okay, here we go. And we're not going to act on these names immediately. This is something, though, that we have a goal for this year, that this is something that we need to establish for us to be able to grow and be able to meet the needs of our community better and be able to meet the needs of our body better. And so the other reason this will relate to you is because I talked about last week, we're a holy priesthood. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, it says that all the believers are a holy priesthood. We all have a ministry. Remember in Ephesians 4, it says that the job of the pastors and teachers is to equip the believers in the church for the work of ministry. I know in some church cultures, there's this idea that the pastors do ministry and everybody else is just here to kind of watch it and support it, right? But that's not what the New Testament says. It says that everybody in the church is to be about the work of ministry. The role of pastors is to equip you for ministry. We talked about last week, David Platt had this quote that said, the church is not an audience of spectators, we're a fellowship of disciple makers. And so every one of us has a role in ministry. So as I'm going through these three, these are all components of any biblical ministry, right? Okay, so let's start. So first thing I want to look at is the term elder. Why are pastors called elders? They're not called elders because they're necessarily old, okay? They're called elders because of their maturity. There's no age requirement in the New Testament. Remember last week, the the priests in the Old Testament, they had to be between 25 and 50 years of age. There's no such age requirement in the New Testament, but elders or pastors need to be examples to the church. And so if you take a look at 1 Timothy 3.1, go ahead and turn there. Paul sends Timothy to establish elders, and he gives them this list. And here's the list. 1 Timothy 3.1, it says... The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, that in the Greek literally is a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, which is a super important thing for uh, any ministry, is that we'd open our homes and give our lives to people, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well and with, his, uh, and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? But he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. That's interesting, huh? He must be well thought of by outsiders or non-Christians so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. So as you're thinking of people, they sh- as you're thinking of men to write down, you should be thinking of ones that meet those qualifications. Um, 
And we're not talking about perfect people, right? We're not talking about perfect men. There are no perfect men. But men that would serve as examples. Um, and this is important, guys, really important, that all these things are character. Did you notice that? Almost all of them. The only ones that would be an exception would be the able to teach, right? All the rest are actually character-type things, right? And that's really important, guys, because um, a bad leader can bring massive shame on the church and the cause of Christ, right? And we've seen that even in just the last couple years in our valley where pastors, and it's always the same dumb three things, right? It's always money, power trip, or adultery. It's like Satan uses the same thing over and over again. And it's super sad because every time it happens, the sheep scatter, and people end up more and more cynical about the church. And we're not immune to that cynicism, right? As we see it happen over and over again, we go, it's like, oh, maybe they're all like this, right? And so it's very important that we pick people with a certain character, right? As best we can. Um, the other important thing is that every leader's example is their most powerful form of leadership. You guys realize that? Your most powerful form of leadership is your example. Um, and parents, you know this. You know that far more is caught than taught, right? Unfortunately, right? You see things in your kids and you think, that's not the way I raised them. And it's like, well, you did, you know? Like, it was your example that they were listening to. And people that you disciple are the same way. They watch your life way more than they listen to your teaching, right? And so, so many, so many more things are caught than taught. And I definitely had that experience. When we first came to the Valley, we were a part of a church where there's a pastor there. His name was Dave Prophet. Awesome guy. Super evangelistic. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, on Saturdays would go down to the servicemen center, you know, and be sharing the gospel with servicemen. He'd go door to door. I mean, the guy was relentless, right? And I had been taught to evangelize before, you know? We should all evangelize. And I thought, you yeah, know, I should. I felt guilty about it. Didn't do it. But when I saw Dave's life, I thought, okay, this can be done. You know, Dave's an ordinary person, and he can do this, and I can do this too. And I'll tell you guys, you guys have been such a profound example to me. Um, I could name names, but some of you, your, your desire for evangelism and discipleship constantly is an example to me. I'm hugely influenced by you. Or um, your emphasis on prayer and healing. Or uh, some of you, your hospitality. You know, I look at your hospitality and I think, man, okay, that's how I need to be, right? And it's so much more powerful. I know in the New Testament it says I should be hospitable. But then when I see it in the lives of some of you, it blows me away. Or I see your selfless service week in and week out, and it speaks tons to me. Or the way you disciple your kids and train them in the things of the Lord. How about you guys? How about in your ministry, in this church, in your family, with your friends, with your neighbors? Um, you will have the most influence when you provide others with an example to follow, not just a teaching to hear. Right? This is a key part of ministry for all of us. People don't just need to hear how to live like Jesus. They do need that. They need to worry. They need to hear. But they need to see it in the actual lives of their leaders in the church and in the home. And there's nothing, guys, what's cool is there's nothing in the Bible that, that Christ has commanded that we can't learn to do by the power of the Spirit. Do you guys realize that? Jesus didn't give us impossible things to do. We can learn how to do the things Jesus commanded, not perfectly, but we can really learn to do them by the power of the Spirit. But part of the way we learn is by watching other people, right? We're around other people. You know, you've heard that you're kind of going to be the average of the, the, you know, the five or six people that you hang around with the most, right? We learn from the examples of our leaders. It's amazing how Paul so often calls people to imitate him, you know? We hear that and we're like, man, that's crazy. Can you imagine being able to say that? Being able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Let me show you how to do that. Not in an arrogant way, but like, hey, you know, there's this thing. I know it looks hard to do. Let me show you the steps in it. Let me show you what I'm thinking. Let me show you the way I pray about this. Let me show you what passages of Scripture have really motivated me, right? 
Robert Murray McChain, who was a pastor in the 1800s, he said this, the greatest need of my people, the people in his church, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Isn't that powerful? I mean, that was, he felt the greatest need. And that's why, guys, when we're stuck, when we're stuck in a bad pattern of marriage or a bad pattern of parenting or some sin issue that we're stuck in or we just don't really feel like we're making progress in studying the word or prayer or whatever it is, sometimes the best thing we can do is find somebody in the church that we go, like, this person does it, and then follow them around, you know? Just say, hey, I want to walk with you for months or years or however long it takes to learn how to do the things you seem to know how to do, right? Our examples are important. Things are more caught than taught. Secondly, um, they're also called pastors. What does the term pastor mean? It says that, um, he says, shepherd the flock, right? So one of the terms for the, the leaders of the church is pastor. Uh, pastor is the Latin word for shepherd, and that Latin word means literally to lead to pasture, to set to grace, to cause to eat, okay? So pastors are to shepherd God's people and lead them in, to, to feed on God's word. One of the main ways that, that pastors or shepherds care for the flock is by feeding them. And I, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Peter, and as he's writing this and he's saying, shepherd the flock, he had to be thinking about when he was restored by Jesus, Remember that he had betrayed Jesus, right? He had denied him, and Jesus um, died on the cross. He was raised, and then later he comes and he finds Peter, right? And Peter's decided he's just going to go back to fishing. He's obviously lost his job. You might have wondered if he lost his salvation at that point because, you know, he had blown it big time. And Jesus comes to him and restores him, and look at the way Jesus restores him. It's in John 21, verse 15. He says this, But when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, Jesus, and Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. That word tend is the same word as shepherd in here. He says, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Isn't that cool? How do we show our love for Jesus? What is Jesus looking for is our expression of love. And, and the, the way Jesus' kind of love language, the way that Jesus would have us love him in return, he says is feed my lambs. And you guys all have opportunities to do that, whether you're, um, uh, you have close friends that you share the word with, or you have a spouse that you share the word with, or your kids, or coworkers, people in this church that you minister to. You have an opportunity to show Jesus' love by feeding his lambs. Isn't that cool? I just love that. Feed my lambs. That's the way you could show it. That's the way that we show it. And the way that we feed them is through God's word. God's word, guys, has everything that God's people need to thrive. Everything. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, which is amazing, huh? Like it's God's breathing out to us, right? It's speaking to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so it's everything we need. And guys, it's also super tasty, Okay, because you could have something like you could be on one of these shake diets or something. They're like, this has got everything you need, everything you need's in here. You know, there's like, we put brine shrimp in there, we put grasses. 
You know, it's a whole list of like heinous things, right? This has got everything you need. And you could go like, you could believe that and you could take the shake and do it. But God's word's more than just nutritious. It's savory. It's tasty. He's given us all different genre, right? In here we've got, we've got histories. So we could read the, the story of Christ and his people from the Old Testament through the New Testament. It's got letters. So you have like very clear teaching, like if you're a very like engineer type, you could read Romans or something, and it's very like clear, straight down the row. You could read um, the prophetic literature, which is not like that, that, that foretold Christ and foretold the things to come. You got like Job. You could sit with Job and his sores, right? As he sits there, just a heap, you know, being destroyed by the things that came upon him and, and, and hear of his faith. You could read Ecclesiastes. If you're feeling kind of emo, you know, you can read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is like how everything here is just, is just meaningless apart from Christ, right? So it's like under the sun, without Christ, it's just all meaningless. And you can put on your black zipper hoodie, you know, and some makeup, and if you're a dude, and you could just read Ecclesiastes. You could read Proverbs, which is kind of the, like the Twitter, right, of the Bible. It's short little pithy statements of truth and wisdom. You could read the Psalms. Guys, in the Psalms... Every emotion you can imagine. Every bad life circumstance is there. And, and if you don't know where to find it, just start. You know, and you read one and you go, no, that's not where I'm at. No, that's not where I'm at. Oh, too happy. And then you get to the one where it's like, you know, you've abandoned me. And, you know, where are you, God? And things like that. And you could track with them. And God could minister your soul that way. I mean, it's savory. And you got apocalyptic literature, like part of Daniel and, and Revelation, which all these, like, flashing images, kind of hard to figure out how they all go together. Super artsy. If you're the artsy type, you love that, right? God is a good and generous chef, and he's prepared for us a varied and delicious feast in the word. And the pastors or elders are called to, to know and to love this book so that they can feed God's people with a rich banquet and equip them for ministry. And so that's why one of the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 is that they must be able to teach. And that teaching just doesn't just happen like up front like I'm doing now. It happens in small gatherings. It happens in discipleship meetings. It happens in counseling. Sometimes we don't want to call it counseling. We just call it coaching, right? I need some coaching. Okay, let's get together and let's talk about how to do this, how to live this. Um, and as a church family, guys, we need to really start trusting God's word to do the heavy lifting of transforming people's lives, don't we? We need to really trust this. Um, this October... Um, on Halloween, will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So it was was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther hammered his disagreements. Many of them were about indulgences, which was like kind of like paying to have your sins forgiven kind of deal. And um, what's really cool is what Martin Luther said about the power of God's word in that whole thing. This is what he said. He said, take me for example, this is Martin Luther, take me for example, I opposed indulgences, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word, otherwise I didn't do anything. And then he says this, and then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip, the word so greatly weakened the arguments of my opponent that never a prince or emperor could ever do such damage. I did nothing, the word did it all. I left it to the word. Isn't that cool? He's like, while I was sleeping or drinking beer, the word of God was doing its work out there. Isn't that amazing? It's so classic Luther. When you read his earlier stuff, you're like, this guy's awesome. When you read his later stuff, you're like, oh no, what happened to him? I I think he had something happen. But um, how about you? In the areas of influence that you have with other believers in the church, in the home, with friends, are you relying on God's word to do the heavy lifting? Or are you relying on your own strength? 
pastors can do this, parents can do this, spouses can do this, you try and rely on like manipulation and you know, try and do these different things, try and make things happen, or are you leaving it to the word? Guys, trust this, that when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, it feeds, grows, and transforms people. Like Luther, leave it to the word. Then while you're sleeping, or, you know, God's word will be doing its work, right? So leave it to the word. Thirdly, pastors are called overseers. This is the least popular of the terms. Overseers, sounds kind of creepy, I guess. Um, he says in this passage that pastors are to exercise oversight. The word there is episcopoi. It can be translated bishop. You could call your pastors bishop, which would be really weird. Um, we don't do that here. Um, but it means to keep watch over. Pastors are called to keep watch over the church. And this term overseer, it, it has the idea of like management, leadership, decision-making role of the pastor. And that's why in 1 Timothy 3, one of the requirements is that they know how to manage their own household well. He says, if somebody can't manage their household, then they shouldn't manage the household of God. Kind of makes sense, you know? It's like, okay, figure out how to do that, and then we'll give you this so you don't destroy both, right? <laughs> so start there. Um, it's important for two reasons. It shows their skill in management, but it also shows that God cares more about your family than whether you serve as a pastor or elder. You guys realize that? God cares more about your family. That's why he has these requirements. Um, none of us, guys, none of us in this church are going to sacrifice our marriages or our kids to build a church. We're not going to do it. That's not God's plan. He doesn't need you to do that. He's not asking for that. Um, he can do things quite on his own without us, right? Um, so, I mean, just me, for example, like my wife and my kids love doing this. My kids... Kids love coming to church. We love doing this. This is something that we feel like we're called to do. But if there ever comes a time when they don't, i got to reevaluate. And that's what's cool about having a plurality of elders. You know, a guy could take a break. A guy could go, you know what, like, something's going wrong here at home. Let me just step out of this for a little bit and see if we can get this fixed. If a pastor or elder's family shaky, should take a break. That's what God would have him to do. Take care of what's most important, his family. So the elders or pastors are charged with the overall direction and leadership of the church. They're called to prayerfully watch over. So often in the New Testament, that's combined, being watchful in prayer, praying and watching. They're to prayerfully watch over the church. What's their goal in leadership? Because you guys, we've all seen different styles of leadership, right? We've seen people that it's all about power, it's all about control, it's, you know, this is their own little uh, experiment they want to do. What was Paul's goal in leadership? This is so cool. This is what Paul's goal in leadership was. 2 Corinthians 1.24, he said this to the Corinthians. He said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. How's that for a statement of leadership? How's that for you as parents? How's that for you as a spouse? How's that for you in the ministry that you do with people? That you don't lord it over people's faith, meaning you don't get involved in all the details of their lives. You guys been a part of churches like that? Where it's like they really want to get into your life in all kinds of weird ways? You know, I read something this week that a pastor without a Bible has no authority. Okay? The only thing that a pastor has authority over is things they can show you in the Word. Show you here. The authority's in the book. The authority's not in him. And, um, and to get involved in people's daily lives and get me, you know, meddling in their affairs is not the role of the pastor. And I always think, too, like when I see churches like that, I've been a part of them, who's got time for that? Who's got time to be trying to run other people's lives? I don't have time for that. Do you guys have time for that? Anybody got time for that? We ain't got time for that, right? Play the video. Ain't got time for that. Okay. And what, this is such an awesome role, too. It says, he says, we are workers with you for your joy, which is awesome because joy in Christ is what sets people free from the allure of sin. Sin's only attractive because we feel empty, we feel hungry, 
we feel sad, we feel um, depressed, all those kind of things, they, they make sin attractive. I want to somehow like feed this scratch, this itch I have. I have somehow fill this emptiness. But if we have joy in the Lord, you know, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we have joy in Christ, it frees us from the allure of sin. And, um, and also, when we have joy in God, it glorifies God. You know, Piper says, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's glorified by our desiring and, be, and enjoying him. How about you? In the area of oversight that you have, whether it's in your family or those you disciple, what's your goal? Make it your goal, guys, in your home to maximize their joy in Jesus. Take Paul's, you know. Workers with you for your joy. So as we serve God's people, we're to, to be an example. That's what elder points to. We're to feed them with God's word. That's what pastor points to. And we're to help them find their greatest joy in Jesus. That's what overseer points to. And then Peter adds this one last thing. He says, you've got to have the right heart in it. 1 Peter 5.2, he says, you want to do this not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. There's three motives here that we've got to watch out for. It's human approval, you know, under compulsion, that we would somehow you know, serve people just because we have to, just because we feel social pressure to, just to, for their approval, just because we need our tank filled with their approval, right? He says, watch out for that. Don't do it under compulsion. He says, another one could be greed. This is not for shameful gain. We don't want to do this out of greed. He says, for power. He says, not domineering over those in your charge. You shouldn't do it for power. So we should care for God's people, not for their approval, not for greed, not for power, but because you have a burning desire, guys. You have a burning desire to serve Christ. So where does that, I want to end with this. Where does that energy come from? Where does that heart come from? Where do you get a burning desire to serve people in the church? Where do you get a burning desire to serve people in your home? Where do you get a burning desire to serve people in your community? Where does that come from? And it comes from this. You will be the shepherd God's called you to be when you look more and more at the great shepherd. Take a look at verse four. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd and that all of the shepherds, whether they're pastor elders or whether people shepherding people in their homes or in the church, we are all, guys, very flawed reflections of the great shepherd, right? Of the chief shepherd, very flawed. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What's really cool about that is he's pulling an image from the Old Testament, right? In Psalm 23, it says, God says, you know, it says of God that he is the good shepherd, right? Psalm 23, he is my shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Jesus saw our sin, and he knew that our sin would eternally separate us from him. That we would spend an eternity apart from the only source of joy in the universe. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By Jesus' wounds you have been healed. And then listen to the flock sheep imagery. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Isn't that cool? Overseers being given to Jesus as a title. The amazing news, guys, is that Jesus, the good shepherd, died for his rebellious sheep. The shepherd died for sheep. Who does that? You know what I mean? Like, if your family, if you had a family member that was a shepherd or whatever, we have them in Menifee sometimes, right? We have the sheep that come, and there's this guy that lives in a little trailer with them and feeds them. It's really fun. I don't know if it's fun for him. It's fun for me to see. Um, so you had a family member that was a shepherd and you'd heard, 
Yeah, you know, went out on the job and there were some sheep and they ran away and did some stuff that they weren't supposed to and he died for them. What would you say? Okay, that's not expected. Like, that doesn't even sound like a good idea. Like, what's going on here? And, and, and yet, in the gospel, we hear that Jesus himself died for rebellious people. It's just as unthinkable, right? That he would die for us. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And you know, you know how we're told not to do it under compulsion? Jesus on the cross served us not under compulsion, but willingly. He said in John 10, he said this. He said, don't, don't make a mistake about this. He said, no one takes my life from me. Remember Jesus saying that? He goes, no one takes my life from me. It's not under compulsion. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to bring it up again. This charge I've received from my father. He's like, no one took my life from me. I laid it down not under compulsion. On the cross, guys, we see Jesus serving us, not out of shameful gain, but eagerly. Let's not forget that Jesus already had everything. Right? There's nothing for him to gain by dying for us. Jesus died on the cross not because he wanted what's yours, but because he wanted you. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your stuff. He wanted you. It's amazing. And Jesus, guys, never domineers over those in his charge, though he's a king and has every right to, but has always served as a beautiful example. And when we serve his flock, guys, we're serving the people most precious to Jesus in the whole world. And the amazing thing is in this passage in verse 4, he says he's going to reward us. Which is crazy. I mean, here we are sinners. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal condemnation. He dies for us, redeems us. And then he works through us. We don't do it ourselves. He works through us. And then he goes, you know what? I kind of want to reward that. And you're like, wait, I should be in hell. And you did that through me. He's all, yeah, I just really love to give you guys rewards too. Isn't that amazing? God's amazing. I just say to you, don't give up. Okay? I think every one of us needs to hear that regularly. Don't give up. Don't give up on serving those kids of yours, that little flock he's given you. Don't give up on loving and serving your spouse, which is, by the way, your most important ministry. Don't give up, guys, on serving your neighbors. Don't give up on serving God's people here. Finish well. Life is short, and the reward is huge. You have no idea. I have no idea. Life is short, okay? So whatever hardship you're dealing with right now and serving your kids or serving your spouse or serving other people in your life, know this, life is incredibly short and the reward he has is huge. I mean, on the other side, we're going to go like, oh, you reward things like that? Like, I had no idea that the reward was so huge. And we're going to look back on our lives and we're going to like, it's so short. Why didn't I live for Christ? You know? Why didn't I live more to, to disciple my kids? Why didn't I live more to love and serve my spouse when it was difficult, right? Life is short. The reward is huge. The chief shepherd is coming soon, and his reward is coming with him. Let's pray. Father, I, I um, just thank you that you would die for rebellious sheep. Lord, we have no value compared to the value of your son, and, let, and, and yet you came and wanted us and redeemed us. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.